0: Ooh. welcome to Irish passport uh, let's do it welcome to the Irish passport
1: I'm Tim McInerney
0: I'm Naomi O'Leary
1: we're friends can okay, you well to Naomi
0: An Fat Tim this is your passport to Irish culture history and politics uh-huh. I'm recording
1: one one two two three, three. okay. Hi everyone, and welcome to part two of our episode on Ireland's lost forests, where we've been getting to the root of why Ireland has. (laughs) This may happen a lot. We've been getting to the root of why Ireland has such a small amount of forest cover compared to other countries in Europe.
0: In part one of this episode, we took a look at the history of deforestation in Ireland and saw how a combination of over-farming, uncontrolled grazing, short-sighted policies and government mismanagement, both before and after independence, all contributed to the denuding of Ireland of its native woodland.
1: Right, so if you haven't listened to that episode yet, it's probably a good idea to tune into it first because it provides a bit of context for what we're going to discuss today, and we'll be waiting for you back here as ever.
0: In the second part, we are bringing you up to the present day. We're going to discuss some of the political forces that continue to shape the ecological landscape of Ireland and the forestry policy of the current Irish government. But first, we're going to take you to the remote Barra Peninsula, where in less than 15 years, a rewilding process has taken place that has caused a transformational effect creating the return of the kind of woodland that once covered Ireland, but is now incredibly rare.
2: It's a bit swampy there, mind yourself. Okay. Um, your Thank there. you.
0: I'm picking my way through the densely grown trees and vegetation of a hillside that stretches up above the Atlantic Ocean.
2: to another spot. i okay. go, go ahead of you. So sure. I can just...
0: I'm with Owen Dalton, a sculptor and restoration stonemason who in 2009 sold his house in Dublin to buy a neglected piece of farmland here in Cork on Ireland's southwestern coast. In his recent book, An Irish Atlantic Rainforest, Owen recounts his experience of coaxing this land back to its flourishing natural state. The book won an award and became a bestseller in Ireland. I started by asking him why he chose to use that word, rainforest, with its connotations of something precious and exotic, rarely used to describe Irish habitats, but with his help, increasingly common as a word to describe Ireland's native woodlands.
2: After a couple of years something started to dawn on me because in the years after I moved down here I started to really read kind of furiously any kind of literature I could lay my hands on on woodland ecology and ecology in general. And I started to realise that what I had here wasn't just native forest it was rainforest. And I couldn't believe it at first. I kind of I had I struggled to believe that it could that such a thing could be, you know, actually true. But it definitely is. And the reason the way you know that is the presence of what are called epiphytes. So these for example, this is polypuddy fern. Polypuddy, the name comes from many-footed because each of these looks like a little foot sticking out, each of the little kind of sub-fronds. These ferns are examples of epiphytes which are plants that grow on other plants, generally trees, but without being rooted in the ground. So, for example, the ivy growing up that tree nearby, or you'll see honeysuckle on some of the other trees, they're not epiphytes because though they're growing on the trees, they're rooted in the ground what's important about epiphytes is that because they're not rooted in the ground they depend on the frequency of arrival of moisture in the air around them because that's the only way they can get moisture is from rain or mist or fog or drizzle or whatever else so epiphytes can only grow in places where you've you know you could you could talk about high rainfall But that's only part of the picture. What's more important than the actual amount of water that falls out of the sky is that it happens on a kind of like on a regular basis. So these kind of species are able to survive. And if you go into any kind of a rainforest anywhere on the planet, whether it's a, a tropical rainforest like the Amazon or the Congo, you'll see epiphytes.
0: And just to describe what we're seeing, it's an oak tree which has like a bed of moss over it's, its a branch and then they're sort of sticking up out of the moss.
2: Yeah, right? I mean, all of that, all of the mosses are epiphytic. Yeah. And you can see they're all growing on the top of, of the limbs where, where the mo- moisture, most of the moisture is. Yeah. And yeah, the polypuddy is growing out of that bed of moss. If we were to go deeper into the forest, you'd see lots of other types of epiphytes. This is what's called a temperate rainforest because Ireland is in the temperate zone of the planet. There's a, a really high diversity of mosses and liverworts here because of the humidity of the habitat. You know, On the island of Ireland you're not going to find a habitat that's more diverse than this.
0: When Owen found this land back in 2009, he chose it because it already had an unusually well-preserved ecosystem with mature trees and significant amounts of biodiversity compared to the surrounding farmland. The reason for that is down to history and a husband who emigrated for America and never came back.
2: There was a family here called the Crowleys. In the early 20th century, the father Phil Crowley, who was a copper miner over in Allihies, he emigrated as did so many other people from this area to Butte, Montana. There was a whole community of people from Irees, this area, over in Butte, and he went over as well. Nobody seems to know what happened to Phil over there, but he never came back. Anyway, so he left behind his wife and five kids, and he went over, and then most of the crowley kids went to america as well but a couple of decades later kind of like 20s 30s that kind of a thing only one ever came back so really what happened to kind of cut a long story short is that from about 1909 onwards the place wasn't really used as a farm now i mean they would have had a few cows and they would have maybe been cutting branches for firewood and a, but it was very low-key stuff, you would have found pockets of wild native trees in the rougher parts of the farm, of which there are quite a few. So, areas where maybe there was kind of cliffs and rock and, you know, it was just, you wouldn't, it would be useless for agriculture, so you just say, well, Sherlock, we'll leave that, we won't bother with that. The same as what you have in neighbouring farms still. You have these kind of pockets, these refugia, of not just the trees, but all of the associated biodiversity that goes along with a, a, a native forest ecosystem. After Phil went to the states and the land was kind of became disused, those trees were then able to seed back out into the land, and a forest was able to form. A lot of people have the idea that if you want a tree, you have to buy one and dig a hole and put it in and plant it. But trees have been reproducing without any difficulties for hundreds of millions of years. The thing that stops that is grazing by either domestic livestock, as in sheep, cattle, goats, or else artificially elevated densities and numbers of wild herbivores like deer or feral goats or whatever.
0: But even though the land was full of mature trees and vestiges of woodland, the ecosystem was nevertheless in a seriously degraded state. A group of people who set up an alternative community nearby had released goats into the landscape and they had multiplied. These goats were grazing the forest to death.
2: Mainly the problem here was the feral goats. And they were literally just stripping the... They'd stripped everything out from about head height down. There was no vegetation whatsoever beyond mosses and maybe a few highly unpalatable species of plants. The effect that the goats were having on the forest was primarily to prevent it from regenerating because if trees can't seed and grow new trees, over time, as the trees age and die, the forest starts to contract and fade away. And that's what was happening here. They were also, they'd stripped out all of the really rich ground flora that's a really po- important part of the ecosystem in a native forest. That was all just completely gone. They had stripped the bark from a lot of the trees, which kills trees. So mature trees, if if the bark is removed all the way around, the tree dies. And that's exactly what the, the goats had done. So the whole place was kind of littered with dead trees as well. And as if that wasn't all enough, What was also happening was that the fact that the place was so severely overgrazed had completely opened the way to invasion by non-native invasive plant species. So the same crowd who released the goats also brought in about eight or nine different species of invasive plants into the area and planted them up on their acre and from there they started spreading out over the whole area. The worst of the whole lot was rhododendron ponticum.
0: Owen points out that if you want to see what a degraded woodland ecosystem like that looks like today, you don't have to look very far. Just go to Killarney National Park. Although it's protected as a last vestige of ancient Irish woodland, it's severely grazed by invasive sika deer and rhododendron plants have gained a deep foothold within the park. This is thought to have contributed to why the refuge was vulnerable to a forest fire which tore through thousands of acres of the national park in late April 2021 before firefighters gained control. A healthy Irish rainforest should not burn like that. That's a sound of a stream that happens to be flowing through the woods. Can you explain Why is it that having all of this vegetation here means that it's less likely to flood on lower levels?
2: Sure. Well, one of the really interesting things over this summer, for example, was that during the prolonged droughts that we had here, all of the streams and even the small rivers in the area all dried up. For a long period of time, they they went completely dry. Whereas this stream flowing in through the woods kept on flowing. I think what was happening was that it's well known that rainforests of any sort absorb during times when you get heavy rain and prolonged periods of rain, which is certainly what you get here in the winter, they absorb vast quantities of water and then let it back out slowly. So they essentially regulate the flow of water. So you you don't get the extremes that you would otherwise get of either massive floods or rivers and streams drying up. It it regulates them to the point where they keep flowing at a reasonable rate within certain margins. Throughout the year,
0: so it's like a giant sponge that totally. sucks up all the water and then sort of lets it out slowly, yeah. slowly. Yeah. And keeping everything else alive as well, everything exactly. the water.
2: Yeah. This is a biological refuge for all sorts of species. When I say all sorts of species, I'm literally talking about thousands of different types of species. Ireland is undergoing massive collapse of nature right now, and that that is undisputed all of the data shows that. So, whereas a place like this is a refuge for many of the species that are declining so rapidly. You might wonder,
1: how did Owen achieve the regeneration of this Irish ecosystem? Did it take a massive replantation project, huge manpower or investment? Well, actually none of those. As he explains, it just required taking human influences away.
2: So what I did was I applied for a scheme called the Native Woodland Scheme, and in the meantime, I started getting getting rid of the rhododendron and other invasive species in my spare time by hand by myself. I started with the biggest plants, and the reason why you do that is because you want your first priority is to stem the continued flow of seeds into the the environment. A single rhododendron bush can send out a million seeds every year and then you start kind of tackling the younger ones coming up all around the place. So about a year and a half later the Native Woodland Scheme uh, application was approved and some contractors came in and put up a deer fence. The following spring the place just started to come to life. Native tree seedlings started popping up everywhere, little oaks, birches, hollies, sallies, hawthorn, blackthorn, ash, and were able to carry on growing. In addition, I was absolutely so overjoyed to see the, the whole floor of the forest, slowly at first, but with increasing speed, started to kind of erupt with a really rich ground flora of like scores of different species bluebell and lesser celandine and wood anemone and wood sorrel and dog violet and primrose and scores of others as well most of them were species that I just thought well they're not here it's so difficult to imagine it's so difficult I think now to look at this and to imagine what it was like you know if, if you can just imagine from this height down there was no vegetation whatsoever Except as I say, the mosses and a few other things that were weren't really palatable, you know, very little. The place was literally stripped bare. And if you want to know what it looked like, go to Killarney National Park, particularly the kind of the western malls Gap side, and just take a walk, and you'll see there's nothing there. Do you know, there's bracken. They won't eat bracken, and then there's all the invasive species, particularly rhododendron, because they don't touch that either. In the years since, you know, I've just I've just watched the whole place come back to life, you know.
0: Before long, a transformation was underway.
2: Before that was there. That was all just completely open grass uh-huh. with a few gorse bushes.
0: These are the pioneer trees.
2: Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and you can see there's a mountain ash there coming up through it as well. That's a wild apple tree. Oh. So, you know, it's not That somebody was eating an apple and threw it away and it grew into a tree. This is like one of the wild ancestors of domesticated apple. It's a a wild crab apple, Malus silvestris. And there's a few of them growing in the far in the woods. Over there there's something interesting as well, which I'll show you. so all of the this plant here and all of these these kind of purplish flowers that's called devil's bit scabious and devil's bit scabious is the food plant for the larvae of a butterfly called marsh fritillary, which are ireland's only protected butterfly because they're rare and declining across europe including ireland and they can't survive without that plant because they lay their eggs on it and the larvae then eat the leaves and so if you find marsh artillery butterflies there must be devil's bit nearby the native mammals that were here when i came were it was a very restricted group really you had hares stoats foxes badgers wood mice but with the kind of resurgence of the natural flora here and the the return to health of the ecosystem Lesser horseshoe bats have moved in, and so have pine martens, and otters have started to turn up in the streams as well. Otters? Yeah, yeah.
0: I didn't know otters could be in streams that of that size.
2: I was kind of amazed as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've never seen one up this far. In mm. fairness, they're always co- kind of closer down towards the sea, but that's not to say they don't come up here, do you know? But they're definitely lower down, yeah. do you know? And I think what's attracting them in here is probably they come up looking for frogs which they love to eat but there's possibly also um, eels and maybe even brown trout in the stream. Now I haven't seen eels or brown brown trout but I had an aquatic ecologist here who spends a lot of time surveying places like this and he says there's a good chance they are there especially if the otters are coming in.
0: Just like we discovered in our last episode Here on the Barra Peninsula, the place names are a clue to just how ancient these habitats are. Owen pointed out that some stone remains stand in the forest, now overgrown with trees rooted within a crumbling wall. This was a clue to a pattern of ecological boom and bust that has characterised Ireland's landscape for thousands of years.
2: Where we're standing here, for example, this is an old pre- Famine cabin, uh, and if you look at the stream that's flowing just over there, that's the boundary between two different townlands because the the farm kind of straddles two townlands. Where we're standing is Boffigal, which means uh, in Irish it means recess of the wild wood, uh, and on the far side of the stream is Fonkel or sometimes they, it's called Fonkil and the Woods, and Fonkil means sloping wood. So both names and like most most of the the kind of like most townland names would have been established by about the 8th century AD um so we have an idea that up until that time there was still significant woodland in this area because mo- both names come from woodland you went from a situation around roughly 4000 BC in which practically the entire peninsula was wooded down to the present situation in which you've only got tiny little pockets here and there but the interesting thing about it is that it didn't go in a linear decline like this. What you had instead was a collapse and then a resurgence of woodland and then another collapse and then another resurgence and then another collapse. Literally repeated cycles of of a collapse of the forests and then the return of the forests. But... The overall trend was downwards throughout. The archaeological evidence from this area seems to suggest that what was going on was that farmers came in, they cleared the forest. I think what happened was that they put their cattle into the forest. The cattle would start eating all of the vegetation, including the tree seedlings, and that would prevent the forest from regenerating, kind of the same as what I found when I came here. And if that goes on for long enough over centuries the forest just dies off you know and the people who are around don't even realize it's happening because it's happening over t- in a time frame that's far too long for their for them to perceive the the changes you know what seems to have happened is that as a result of clearing the forests the land became completely depleted over time because the heavy rain that you get in these areas washed away that you didn't have the forest and the other vegetation to hold together the soils and to retain the nutrients and all of that forests build soils bits of sticks or or branches or trunks that have fallen over and leaves in the autumn all of this constant rain of material onto the onto the woodland floor that builds soils so without that basically the soils would be would lose their fertility. The result was that you had environmental degradation and collapse and it became impossible to farm and the people moved away. That allowed, without the people there with their gra- livestock grazing the land, that allowed the forest to return over centuries now. You got the process again restarted of all of this stuff falling down and building soils and building fertility and then another bunch of people would say, do you know what, that, that land there, that's actually, you know, that could make a fine farm. And you'd start the cycle all over again, you know. I think, really, essentially, that that process, we're still in the midst of it, really, you know. What you had here in the 1840s was an absolute kind of apocalypse, really. This area was so badly hit by the famine. If you look at the Ordnance Survey maps for the 1840s, within the margins of this farm, you can see various cabins dotted around the place, as well as a, what's called a clohan, which was like a cluster of little cabins, kind of like a little hamlet of cabins. And then when you look at the following Ordnance Survey map from around 1900, they're all gone, or they're indicated, only the walls are indicated, which means that they're roofless. The population of the townland that we're standing in here now, Boffigal, collapsed by over 50% and the townland beyond the stream there, Fonkil, it was close to 75%. Um, Generally, historians reckon that where where you had population collapse around the time of the famine, roughly half of the, the people died and the other half emigrated, do you know? But you're talking about an absolute catastrophe. It's not untrue to say that this forest wouldn't be here but for the famine. Because the population of Barrow went from 39,000 in the 1840s down to only 6,000 in the 1970s. The population decline continued for long after the famine and the population only kind of started to stabilize around the 1970s.
0: There's an important lesson in all of this, as Owen points out. His little piece of rainforest here on the southwest coast is far from the only rewilding project that's taking place in Ireland. But many of them are based on plantation schemes, where humans cultivate and produce the seedlings and dig them into the ground. In many cases, this is appropriate, but that kind of approach is also driven by policy concerns. The production and the planting of trees involves labour. It involves money-changing hands, there are economic actors who may benefit, and most of all, it can be measured. Civil servants can demonstrate to their bosses that X amount of euro translated to Y amount of trees planted in a year. But this doesn't necessarily all lead to a natural ecosystem.
2: We tend to think of a forest as a bunch of trees, like a whole load of trees, but it's really not. A forest is an ecosystem composed of thousands of species of which the trees are only really the most obvious part. But every level, from the ground flora, all the invertebrates, the insects and spiders, to the, the bryophytes, that is the mosses and the, the liverworts, to the to the birds, to the mammals, to the mycorrhizal fungi, to the lichens, you have to understand the forest as an ecosystem composed of thousands of different things that work together. And the fact that they work together is more important than the actual things themselves. It's the relationships between all of these things which co-evolved over eons, you know? One of the really important lessons of this particular place for me is that if you look at what's here, it would be utterly impossible for people to come along and create this. You couldn't come along with a bunch of tree saplings and say let's make a forest and have it come out like this. You just couldn't. The only way that something like this can happen is by people standing to one side and letting nature take its course. Removing the obstacles that we've put in the place of something like this happening which is artificial, artificially high levels of grazing removing those obstacles, or removing the rhododendron, which is another human impact, because we introduced the rhododendron, and then just standing out of the way, you know? And that's the only way you can get an ecosystem as rich as this. If you plant a hazel that you bought in a garden center or a nursery, it's not gonna, you're not gonna get a hazel that looks like this. Trees that we buy and sell are domesticated varieties of native species. So they're kind of like they've been domesticated over long periods of time to give us what we think a tree should be like. Whereas nature, a a wild population of trees, there's huge genetic diversity. People couldn't create something like this. And I think the lesson in all this is for us that what we really need to do to allow nature to return to a healthy state is we need to stand out of the way.
0: All in all, this is Owen Believes. A hopeful story
2: if you remember that a lot of ireland would once have been covered by habitats like this now there's only tiny little fragments this is only a handkerchief here now all together all of the western european temperate rainforest would have, would have played their part a significant part in regulating the global climate unfortunately they're practically all gone now but they could come back that's the really important and hopeful part of the whole thing is that the only thing that's preventing them from coming back is us really.
1: Wow, Naomi, but just the sounds of that forest make me want to be there so badly. I'm a little bit jealous that you got to go on this reporting trip without me. Because, yeah, sitting in a big, dirty, loud city at the moment, uh, there sounds like nothing nicer to be in West Cork in a forest beside a stream with otters and eels and trout and and frogs and all that kind of thing. Um, But it's so, so fascinating. And it's, I mean, one of the details actually that struck me Mm. was that these goats that have caused such devastation just by themselves to that forest in particular was such a a kind of random thing Mm. you know like just a a group of people moved in they had a few goats they didn't look after the goats the goats escaped and an entire forest died Mm. you know because of this it's 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 amazing the consequences of just introducing you know new elements to this very very complete and natural um full ecosystem
0: exactly like the chaos that you know some people's idea of what nature is caused because they were probably Mm. thinking oh this is just nature we just leave them Mm. something in owen's book that i actually really wanted to share with you tim (laughs) is about some of the research that he did locally so he he obviously got really deep into like ordinance maps population surveys writing about the history of forests and ecosystems in the area so he turned up some interesting stuff. As I mentioned, as well as this whole rewilding project, Owen is a sculptor and he conserves stone monuments. Um, hmm. And he, he writes in his book about this one occasion where he got this job restoring a funerary monument in Yule in Cork. And this monument was dedicated to one Richard Boyle, the first Earl of Cork. Do you know anything about him?
1: I do not. I do not know anything about Richard Boyle as far as I can remember.
0: Okay. So, Owen realized mm. as he was like working on polishing up this funerary monument to this guy that this was actually a monument to the man who was responsible for removing much of the trees in the area during this great period of deforestation that took place during the plantation period of the 16th and 17th wow. centuries. Right. So, Richard mm. Boyle was an English politician and he was rewarded with lands that were confiscated during the plantation of Munster and the suppression of local Irish rebellions here's what he wrote in 1632. He wrote, The place where Bandon Bridge, that's West Cork, is situated, is upon a great district of the country, and was within the last 24 years a mere waste bog and wood, serving as a retreat and harbour to woodcurns, rebels, thieves and wolves. And yet now, God be praised, it is as civil a plantation as most in England.
1: Wow what a quote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Our friends the woodkerns c- again. So Owen writes yeah. and in his book that the subjugation of the wilderness and the native populace were very much seen as one and the same task like bounties mm. were put on the heads of wolves and woodcurns. And in 1610 Robert Blennerhassett who I do think came up maybe in our last episode or at least his family. He did. Yeah, they received yeah. land in County Kerry. He described chasing down the woodcurns and wolves as, quote, a pleasant hunt. Wow. Yeah. Jesus. So I have some good news for you, good news for listeners, which is that Owen went into all of this, the history of Robert Boyle, the impact of colonialism, all kinds of interesting uh, topics to do with different approaches to rewilding and stuff. Um, In a conversation in his kitchen, he he invited me in after our tour of the rainforest and we sat down and we spoke all about his book and got into, you know, some of these nooks and crannies of the whole area. And we're going to upload that whole interview over on Patreon for the Patreon supporters. So just subscribe over there if you want to check
1: it out yeah I haven't actually heard that whole interview myself I've only heard the bits that you have heard yourselves listeners um so I can't wait to get to dive into that mm-hmm. and I'm I'm just fascinated to hear more about this dynamic between the woodcurns and the planters that is such an interesting little quote that mm-hmm. you have there from so many perspectives he's um, this is something that I actually really find interesting that mm-hmm. um, and it's something that really binds actually I know I say it a lot but it binds this moment of plantation in Ireland with the new world right um with which is the conflation of the native peoples or the indigenous peoples with uh, the flora and fauna of the mm-hmm. land. Like mm. they're seen as part of, the, uh, part of the woodland. I mean, that kind of survives in this kind of patronizing view of like quote unquote native peoples, where it's like wise people of the woods who like speak to trees <laughs> and like live with the animals. You know, it's this very kind of condescending view uh, mm-hmm. as if you're like, you're not fully human. You're kind of half plant you know, like that's kind of it's kind of the perspective. You know, the the very kind of Western European colonial perspective on it that you're that these people are kind of half plant themselves and that you know, there isn't necessarily a very big distinction between the people Mm. who live in the woods and the woods themselves so to see it laid out there like that is is really something else yeah it
0: has like a huge impact at the time as well in terms of law because if you're part of the flora and fauna you don't have the same rights and recourse to law that human beings do you know Mm -hmm. um that Mm -hmm. citizens do you can't own land for example so that becomes really crucial when they categorised land as not having owners and just being like a uh, territory that's up for grabs. Like that was usually never the case. It actually had people living on that. It. it was just the way that those people were categorized were not as human beings in the same sense as the colonizing forces. They didn't have any recourse to ownership through the law. And that is something that completely unites the situation in Ireland and in places like Canada and the United States with native peoples there.
1: Yeah, of course. Mm. Yes. If, if in order to take this land you have to view it um or frame it as quote-unquote virgin territory as it's so mm-hmm. often framed uh in in that language yeah you you have to characterize those people as as part of the woods because you're clearing the woods and you're clearing the people and for you to take that land the clearing of both is necessary yeah mm-hmm. it's something else robert blenner has it though i mean really <laughs> does take it to another level when he's, he talks about hunting people jesus like yeah <laughs> robert it's, it's like rim. calm down <laughs>
0: Yeah. yeah, gosh.
1: <laughs> a pleasant hunt. And um, yes, of course, so for listeners, that family did come up. I actually, I went, because I was curious after we made our last episode, I went and looked mm. up the Blenderhasset estate, actually, down in Cancaria. Oh, did you? I did, yeah. I found the house. It's still there. It seems to be the, the big house is still there. And Where? they still have a little clump of forest. Oh! <gasps> Yeah, not very much, but they do still have a little clump of forest. I wonder how old that is. But it was reminding me of, there was a TD, I don't remember her name in our last episode, mm. who was advocating for the re-bringing of forestry, forest rather, an industrial forestry, to the Gaeltacht in Kerry. And she was saying, back back then, it was a crime to take the trees, she said, from the Blenner Hassetts, when they owned yeah. this land. You know, oh, they wow. wouldn't let us take the trees. It was a crime. And now you're saying we can't even grow trees here. It's unsuitable. You know, that, that doesn't seem to make sense, she was saying at the time. And I was just thinking, um, she said, in my time and my father's time. That's what made me think of it. I was looking at the aerial photograph. I was thinking of that TD's father, you know, just stealing into those woods and taking branches, you know, and firewoods. (laughs) You know, it's such an interesting and long history. And to see it come full circle like this, that same Blennerhassett back in 1610 was hunting people in those woods. It's It's crazy. crazy.
0: It's crazy. What a history. I I really want to know if that Blennerhassett girl that was in my school was one of them.
1: (laughs) I mean, she chances she are it doesn't sound like the most common name. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, right, listen, if you want to hear that whole interview over on Patreon, just to remind you, it will be available as a bonus episode mm-hmm. uh, for our supporters. And if you want to become a supporter and you're not a supporter yet on Patreon, you can find us at www.patreon.com forward slash theirishpassport, where you can find over almost 100. I think we might be at 100. I Naomi. think we
0: might We're, be over. Yeah, it's something close over. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Tons of episodes.
1: 100 Extra content episodes, uh, if that's not worth your Patreon subscription, i don't know what is now listen i don't want to move away from woodcurns straight quite yet <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because and also speaking of Patreon, we got loads of feedback about the woodcurns. Um yes. it seems like our woodcurn content really struck home actually i want to I want to uh, pay a little bit of homage to our patreon Jerry, who told us that he came for the content and stayed for the cron tent oh. <laughs> That's a good one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I bow. I bow to that. Okay,
0: right. People just love these tree ponds.
1: <laughs> I may or may not have a list of them. I may or may not have a list of them in front of me. So just be prepared. Thanks. Uh, thanks for everyone for, uh, for your input. And I want to go through uh, a few of these things. So first of all, Adele uh, over on Patreon, she drew our attention to the Irish traditional ballad called Bonnie Portmore which maybe some of our listeners might know. And this is quite interesting uh, in terms of what we talked about in these last two episodes. So this is a pretty ancient song, it seems. I I did look up uh, where it came from and it was first put down on paper by a folk music collector called Edward Bunting, who put down loads of stuff uh, on paper uh, for the first time. And what he did was actually, um, it was much older than that already before he put it down. Back in the 1790s, so about 50 years before he did that, he, as a young man, used to go around to these harpers uh, who had these traditional songs and he was writing down the traditional songs from the harpist because he was afraid they were going to disappear, right? So this is towards the end of the penal laws or, you know, all kinds of changes in Irish society. So you can imagine uh, why he might have been a bit worried. Anyway, this one he put down and he said it was also called Peggy ni Lavin, he said, according to these harpists. He thought, Edward Bunting thought it must have been even older than that, maybe dating all the way back to the 17th century. So the lyrics of this song, they allude to the felling of Um, so that would make sense if it dates back to plantation era and also to the exportation of lumber from the island as a resource Bunting kind of claims, and it seems likely, that this is a metaphor for the fall of the Gaelic O'Neill dynasty, who used to own this land at Portmore, uh, which is in County Antrim. It's right beside Loch Ney, that that big huge lake uh, in in County Antrim and lots of other counties. Um, So this land of Portmore was taken over in the 17th century by an English aristocrat named Lord Edward Conway. Whether he hunted human beings or not, we don't know, but he <laughs> took over this uh, land anyway. And the song talks first about this the fall of this, like, beloved ornament tree in Portmore. And then it starts talking about the destruction of the forest in general. And then it kind of links this up to the old world order that, like, disappeared with the forest. So it's really interesting, I think, to, to look at those lyrics. Maybe I have them here. Can you read them out for us, maybe, Naomi?
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay. O bonny Portmore, you shine where you stand, and the more I think on you, the more I think long. If I had you now as I had once before, all the lords in old England would not purchase Portmore. O bonny Portmore, I am sorry to see such a woeful destruction of your ornament tree, for it stood on your shore for many's the long day, till the long boats from Antrim came to float it away. All the birds in the forest, they bitterly weep, saying, where shall we shelter or where shall we sleep? For the oak and the ash, they are all cutten down, and the walls of Bonnie Portmore are all down to the ground. That's very sad, Tim.
1: <laughs> it is very sad and it's got a yeah. lovely tune. Uh, if any of you want to look it up, it's it's actually a really beautiful song. So thanks, Adele, for pointing this out to us. Now, it's interesting for even more reasons, because in our last episode, we were also talking about the selling off of a state in the 18th and the 19th century. So, yeah, yeah we have a dis- disappearance of the Gaelic dynasties like the O'Neills, but Then we also have the Anglo-Irish who were selling off the last of their forests, you know, centuries later. So it's a little bit like what Owen Dal- Dalton was talking about, you know, this boom and bust of the forest in Ireland, mm. you know, that song must have had a very current resonance, even in 1840, when, you know, that was being put down on paper. Yeah. Now, secondly, uh, something we need to bring up, and this is something that loads of listeners wrote in with, this is the kind of legendary status that the felling of the forest has become invested with in Irish nationalist tradition. And we really should have talked about this in our last episode, mm. actually. Kelly over on Patreon had mentioned that they had heard stories in the past that quote, the English cut down all the forests in Ireland to build their naval fleets. And this kind of ignited a little memory in my mind as well. I can't really remember if I have heard that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think not only have I heard it, but I've told people that, I'm sure.
1: Right, sure. (laughs) We may have said it on the podcast off the cuff, (laughs) actually. (laughs) Yeah. And Kelly wanted to know, is this true or is this just propaganda? And the answer is kind of a little bit of both more on the propaganda side I suppose because this has become a fairly widespread idea in a kind of Irish nationalist narrative Um, and like a lot of these kind of ideas it's just the reason that it's not true is because it's way too simplistic basically Mm. Uh, so yeah Right. So British settlers definitely did cut down loads of forest in Ireland, like like we've seen. And they mm-hmm. definitely did export huge amounts of lumber for shipping and loads of other things. Like they talk about it doing this. Mm-hmm. And just like elsewhere in the British Empire, colonialism in Ireland was built on resource extraction. You know, this is one of the reasons why they were there. So that's that's not a question. But that's only one small piece of the story, of course. We have to keep this in mind. One thing that, to, to temper this a little bit, to keep in mind is that evidence suggests that a majority of Ireland's forests had already mm. been cleared before the first plantations got underway. Um, mm. So this was not the one cause of, of clearing forests by any means. This makes sense if you just allow for the fact that agriculture was being practiced on the island for centuries before that. So, of course, Mm -hmm. loads of forest was already being cleared and was still being actively cleared also. So colonialism definitely did play a major role in the clearing of the forests. In that, right, so in, in the clearing of the land for plantations, But also I would put it more at the door of the centuries afterwards, the two centuries Mm. afterwards, where you get this kind of deeply dysfunctional economic system that we talked about in our last episode, which endured just for so long and forced millions of tenant farmers to really intensively clear every little bit of land they could for cultivation. Um, mm. You know, Owen was talking right about people who might have seen a bit of forest, you know, in the nineteenth century, and said, "Ooh, that's a nice piece of land," you know. Like um, this, this was just very, very intense because of colonial dismant- mismanagement. So that's another reason, uh, or another role, or a less mm. visible role, maybe that colonialism played in this. Uh, but. I see. We can't, at the same time, we can't just kind of shirk this off because like attributing the clearing of all Ireland's trees to colonialism or more specifically to the plantations also involves a little bit of convenient kind of uh, dropping of responsibility, you know, Mm. like the 26 counties have been an independent state now for uh, 100 years. And lots mm. of trees could have grown in a hundred years, you know, like we have to take the responsibility for what what trees are here today. We have to realize that the main impediment to the regeneration of forests is us. And the fact that we have not been controlling livestock grazing, like Owen said, mm. and for all those mm. reasons, yeah.
0: That's mm. a really good point, Tim. Um, I thought as well that, you know, the, sort of the cultural memory of the removal of the trees and the association of it with colonialism, as it's reflected in that song as well. Mm. It's understandable that that cultural memory exists because it seems, according to the accounts of the time that we just dis- discussed last week, that the rate of removal of the trees was very visible and very sudden and something that people remembered. So like, you could actually see the effect on the landscape with all these stumps and, you know, mm. forests that people remembered being there were no longer there. So it was kind of a traumatic, violent experience that, like, got ingrained in people's minds. Whereas the other kind of tree removal works really gradually. So the mm. the sort of dying off of forests because they don't regenerate, because all the saplings are being eaten by goats and sheep, that that takes over such a long time span that it doesn't happen even within necessarily people's lifetimes. So people don't have a reference point to even see that it's different. It's just each generation considers what they see to be normal and they don't realize that it's degrading all the time. Do you know what I mean? And they don't realize the extent of what's lost.
1: That's, that's, such, that's such a good point. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it also reminds us, of course, that that cultural narrative of, of the trees disappearing wasn't necessarily about kind of, you know, woodland and <laughs> like nature. You know, this was the destruction of a resource, right? And that's like, or destruction of homes, destruction of... of la- it was just
0: of their world, really.
1: Destruction yeah. of a world. Yeah, exactly. That, of yeah. course, like you say, must have had a major lasting impact on on a cultural psyche. Okay, right, so I'm glad we, we touched on that because it is a it is a big thing. Now, okay, one more thing, I think. Yes, um, the that was brought to our attention. <laughs> we couldn't not come back to this, and we got so much feedback on this, and that is now, listeners, if you haven't listened to the last episode, it's unfortunate because this is gonna sound very odd. Um, but this has to do with the two curious figures in the image we discussed from John Derrick's Discovery of a woodcurn. Hmm
0: Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay, so this was the infamous bare-bottomed mystery. So, yeah, this um, <laughs> is an image from the 16th century, which was purported to depict Gaelic Irish chieftains at a feast in the forest. And in the corner of the image, there's these two guys with their trousers pulled down, and they're like mm. showing their asses. Um, so, Tim, I mean, you thought that they were maybe pooing? I, I didn't really know what was going on.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was my theory at the time. It may still be my theory actually okay. um, but uh, Naomi, it's I might have been wrong about that. actually there's a lot of okay. evidence that suggests that I was wrong about that. Um, okay and it's a lot of evidence that suggests that maybe you were right. I don't know if you remember, but the first thing you s- suggested when you saw those figures were, th- were that they were gestures. Do you remember that?
0: I did think that they were gestures yeah. Thank that's right. That
1: that's that's a good instinct. Um, some mm. listeners wrote in to suggest that you might have been absolutely right about that. Thanks mm. especially to Maeve and Tom on Twitter and John on Patreon. They all wrote in to suggest that this image depicts a very peculiar kind of gesture called a bragator. Mm.
0: Right. I was also following these messages. And mm-hmm. so, Tim, as far as I picked up, a bragator is like a professional farter.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a professional far- farter I mean, Like the place that this episode on trees has brought us Naomi Sometimes, <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> it, it really is something uh, But here we are, yes we're discussing professional farters now um, Yeah, so loads of listeners said that they had already seen this image And when they had seen this image It was shown to them as an illustration of these braggator jesters Who okay. were reportedly ancient Irish quote-unquote flatulous. i.e. professional farters Um, this is legitimately a thing by the way flatulism Uh I suppose or (laughs) flatulis professional farters (laughs) professional farters have been recorded all over the world for millennia they had them in ancient Greece Um, and they also (laughs) they had them in um, the 20th century it was kind of a party piece that you could Go and see in a show, like, uh, there was a guy in the Moulin Rouge who used to be a professional farter, apparently, in the, <laughs> in the, the 30s or something. That's I heard
0: of. I heard of the guy in the Moulin Rouge somehow. Um, I think, <laughs> like, didn't he, like, play, like, a tune? Wasn't it sort of musical? Wasn't that, that the idea?
1: I think so. You know, I think there is a recording. I never clicked on it when I looked this up. <laughs> <laughs> I think there might even be a recording of him. So, uh, okay, uh, apologies in advance for some uh, sort of farting discourse, but uh, apparently he had <laughs> managed to like suck in air oh, and then wait. expel it as well, <laughs> like he was actually playing a musical <laughs> instrument with his bum. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, yes, Okay. So that's him. Anyway, a bit, we're getting <laughs> off topic, wow. Um, <laughs> listen... <laughs> I'm not sure because you can do all kinds of inventive things with a fart, as it turns out. It might depend on the tradition of the time, what you're expected <laughs> to do with a fart. When I looked this up, one of the first things I found was a clip of a professional flatulist on Britain's Got Talent in 2015. Wow. Yeah, the art of flatulism is alive and well. And I have to say, you know, it was disgusting, obviously. I did watch that clip, it was okay. disgusting. And everyone was, you know, horrified in the audience. But they were also in, like, they were also, like, doubled over with laughter because it was so inappropriate. So you could see, actually, how a jester might have, like, a banquet hall, you know, completely reeling from these professional farts. You can see how it's entertainment, I suppose. Mm.
0: Right. (laughs) So do we know that they're performing with their farts for sure? Sorry about the sisters.
1: Well, some people did. But, listen, I'm not sure, or I'm not fully convinced, anyway, that that's what we're Mm. looking at uh, in the image that we discussed in our last episode Mm -hmm. for a few different reasons. Now, I did a bit of digging around about this, uh, more than I thought that I ever would. And (laughs) so there are these people called the Bragator. They're mentioned in loads of articles. You see them in, like, you know, academic articles, in history books and everything they're mentioned. Mm. Uh, So, like, they're a real thing. Uh, But the only source that ever comes up, I, I couldn't find any other source except for this one source of like where they came from is this manuscript from 1160 called the book of leinster and part of this manuscript is a diagram of a feast at tara for the high king right so a gaelic feast and it shows where everyone's sitting and because of where people are sitting it shows like where they are in the hierarchy of the court i Mm -hmm. suppose at tara and Mm. the bragator are there there's also by the way there's professional face contortionists um, as well. Wow. And I think there's professional, like, body contortionists as well. So there's all kinds of, like, gestures like this. Um, sort
0: of like circus performers.
1: Yeah, 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 basically, yeah. The thing is, like, that's the that's the only source um, mm. that I can see far and wide. And that manuscript was written over 400 years before John Derrick published his discovery of a woodkern. So it's a pretty huge leap to assume that that's the same thing that's being depicted mm. in this image. Like, what 400 years ago, was what? It was like, we're in the um, 17th century for us. Mm. Um, it's, it's possible, but it's also a huge leap to kind of make a direct link there.
2: Mm. Now,
1: what I did see a lot on the internet, which made me even more suspicious, was loads of people referencing these Bragator from the 12th century. And then they used John Derrick's image from the 17th century to illustrate it, right, in sixteenth mm. century, rather, you know, this thing that you see in like internet online, you often see this kind of historical stuff using a random old image uh, to, yeah. to, yeah, that kind of thing. It's like mm, this is actually not at all the same era, mm. but it was being presented as if it was, you know, and I see. people were feeding off that, right? So, so if you Google Bragator, this this is the image that will come up This John Derek's okay. image, which makes it right. seem it makes it seem like there's a connection there, right? But the third thing then um that makes me very suspect is that Derek doesn't mention them anywhere mm. in his text. I went okay. back, I had a really good read of the of the poem, and he really describes that feast fairly meticulously. He talks about exactly what they eat, everything disgusting that they do, he describes in like a lot of detail. Their their mm. butter wasn't clean enough for him, he says it was a bit dirty, like he gets so really into details about about what they're doing. Mm and he doesn't mention once those bragator um right. uh, also there's little keys on the image they show interesting things on the image and they don't show them mm. so i mean that still doesn't say mean that that's not what it is but there's just there's actually zero evidence that that's what it is it's like doing, if he was right?
0: if he was going to give out about the dirt on the butter you would think that he would also say <laughs> These guys were, like, <laughs> farting, you know, and this, this yeah. was this, their gross entertainment that they had.
1: Yeah, 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 you would think he would. Now, the only possibility that also occurred to me was, like, the guy who made the image, or or the girl, who knows, um, the person who made the image, was not John Derrick, right? He wasn't a woodcutter. Huh. I I presume, uh, I presume, Right. you know, because this was a very fine kind of art, right? Like a very, an artisan would do this, who did this all the time. Someone
0: else has done the illustrations to the text, else, Exactly. And
1: maybe they knew about the Bragator and maybe they threw it in for fun. Who knows? Who knows? Let me not, let me not uh, poo poo, so to speak, uh, the Bragator. (laughs) (laughs) Not only did they, they exist, this seems to have been a fairly popular pastime across Europe. In the 12th century, anyway. So about okay. the time as that book of Leinster was being written, there was another guy in England called Roland the Farter. <laughs> so <laughs> it was also a, a jester who was so popular that the king bought him like a big estate and stuff. So <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, it definitely wasn't a specifically Gaelic thing. Um, but yeah, end of that. There's no real evidence beyond pretty making a pretty bold assumption that that's what we're seeing okay. in the image. Mm.
0: that's interesting thanks so much for the deep dive on that one tim
1: you're welcome
0: (laughs) we know all about the uh yeah the latest and flatulence research um thanks to all the listeners who wrote in their reactions to the last episode and of course if you have any further leads don't hesitate to hit us up on patreon or on twitter
1: Yeah, yeah yeah because that really had us stumped naomi (laughs) oh my god I don't know uh, what
0: part of your mind allows you to come up with these puns, but I don't share it. I just don't.
1: (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, let us branch out and discuss a little bit (laughs) of the (laughs) current day politics and policy that are shaping Ireland's landscape.
0: Okay. yes. All right. So right at the moment, the Green Party is in the central trunk of government. No, sorry, I'm not even going to try Oh, yes. Oh, um, no, yeah,
1: I got to keep it.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> the Green Party is in a coalition with Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, you know, the sort of traditional parties of power in Ireland. Now, the Green Party have long supported rewilding policies. So there was this expectation that when they got into government, you know, there would be stuff to do with that. Um, so after the election of 2020, what happened? The three parties come together and they draw up this coalition agreement, which sets out all the policies they plan to implement during their time in power. And lo and behold, it includes quite ambitious targets for tree planting. So they mm. say they want to increase Ireland's forest cover or the state forestry assets from 11.6% to 18% by 2050. Uh, which was quite a large increase
1: yeah, large increase over a long period of time, though, 20 feckin' mm. 50. This, is, this mm. annoys me so much about successive Irish governments. They're always saying 2050. It's it's the new mm. 2020. They used to say 2020 back in 2000. It's like com- comfortably long, long, far enough away that they can just not really follow through with this, you know. Um, right. But anyway. Because their own yeah, term is um, much
0: shorter. Yeah, fair enough.
1: Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, when you read into this forestry policy, it's clear that a few different goals are being combined here. So this mm-hmm. is presented as being about reducing carbon emissions and helping to meet Ireland's climate targets, helping biodiversity. But it's also about developing a new industry in rural areas and creating revenue and jobs. So that same old concern is still very much central to this.
0: Right. And the thing is that those different goals might be impossible to reconcile. Um, mm. Like the, the kinds of tree planting enterprises that we talk, we're talk we talking about may not be able to do all of those things. Um, mm-hmm. They may do one or the other and as owen's case shows you know if if you want to restore an ecosystem this plantation approach isn't really the way to do it you need to find out the the little holdout places where the patches and bits of old forest are remaining and just sort of protect them and let them grow bigger right the other thing is like if you plant trees in the wrong place not not only may they not thrive, but they also can actually do ecological damage. Like they can cause the land there to actually start emitting carbon. So it can totally, you know, it can be really counterproductive.
1: There's also an issue of animal ecosystem here, right? So we heard about those, goats and this has happened yeah. in other countries, like grazers that have been controlled by predators, while right, reintroducing larger predators that might eat something like those feral goats. Um yeah. and I seem to remember that the leader of the Green Party, Eamon Ryan, caused a bit of a controversy when he did call for the reintroduction of wolves, right? To Ireland. Yeah,
0: that's right. So that was actually back in twenty nineteen, um, and it's one of like the biggest incidents involving the Green Party leader Eamon Ryan that people remember. <laughs> like if you mention mm. him, people are like, "Oh, the Wolves guy." Like it really <laughs> sort of caught the imagination for some reason, but also in a way to sort of make him seem ridiculous because this idea landed really, really badly. So as you mentioned him. There is evidence that reintroducing the missing predators that have been uh, driven to extinction in various uh, countries—that reintroducing them does introduce more balance into ecosystems, like you say, by keeping down the number of grazers. Not you, not necessarily even by killing them, but just making them a bit more afraid of the woods, so that they don't Mm. go in and like eat all the saplings. Um, And there's some. Examples, including, I think it's in Yellowstone Park in the United States, where reintroducing wolves actually changed the course of the river because the banks got more stable because the trees recovered and it just basically restored the whole ecosystem in a really positive way. There are Mm. some really, really successful examples of reintroductions, but Ireland really doesn't have very much wilderness to work with. And the cultural memory of being around those kinds of animals has been lost. The last one was killed, they say, I think it was in Donegal in like the mm. mid 1700s so this suggestion really caused an uproar it like it was both kind of hilarity like oh my god aren't the greens ridiculous but also there was a lot of anger because you know still ireland is a hugely agricultural country mm. still and people who have livestock are often really horrified at the idea of introducing anything that's going to prey on their sheep and kill their sheep
1: Mm, I like it. It's, it's a chicken and egg situation, right? Because there mm. really uh, isn't doesn't seem to be enough wilderness to kind of keep the wolves far enough away from cultivated terrain. Um, just give them an like,
0: alternative, like to eat. Yeah. Like if they've got enough deer and stuff to eat in the forest, they, they're happy there they're not going to come out and seek the farms and livestock if they have enough stuff to eat elsewhere. They won't choose to come and mess around with human stuff. They, they just come out when they don't have alternatives.
1: Right, sure, and and this isn't by any means. I mean, I can completely see why Irish people saw it as ridiculous. Um, but this is not at all seen ridiculous in mainland Europe, right? Like France and Italy and Spain and what and Germany are doing this all the time, like reintroducing not just wolves but like bears and lynxes and stuff. Yeah. Um, but of course, the big difference is that like there are just huge landscapes of thick impenetrable forest and mountains like forest covering entire mountain systems uh, that just don't exist in Ireland right so you know you send the wolves in there you'll never see them again
0: I think the big mountains is key, actually. Yeah. And there's so there's big corridors of wilderness actually connecting these countries. Um mm. what happened actually is it's not actually so much that they reintroduced these animals. They just got protected status. So previously mm. it was okay to just kill them and shoot them. And there were very, very few left in Western Europe. But there were a few left in like these big forests, these huge natural uh, reserves that they have over in poland and Mm. romania places like that and so there were populations of wolves there that were able to kind of repopulate the rest of europe once they were no longer being killed so frequently their populations began to recover a bit and some wolf families and wolf packs began to travel back across europe and repopulate other areas so basically Mm. they had been almost wiped out but they began to do they've, they've done a you know, from an extremely low base, they've had something of a recovery. So we do have increasing wolf populations. Um, and I have to say, just like people have a similar reaction, many people have a similar reaction to the way that it was seen in Ireland. There's a lot of horrified reactions, particularly from farmers. You know, they don't want their sheep to be killed. That's a cost to them. Um, if you say, well, um, if you put up a fence, then the sheep won't be killed because fences actually are really really effective against wolves then they say but we don't have enough money you know we don't want another cost and so on it's actually a really contentious issue this was all it all came up actually um in, my, in the course of my reporting beat, because there was this big push in the European Parliament to um, downgrade the protection status of wolves and these other predators because mm. the farming in- bodies were so annoyed about it. And they were associated with killing sheep, even though we should say that many, many, many multiple times more sheep are killed by dogs each year than they are by wolves. Like there's hardly any wolves. Most of the time it's mm. dogs. And right. like I mentioned before, research shows they only they only come to livestock as a last resort. It's not like they're you know kind of sheep killers that seek them out or something like that. And funnily enough, Tim, you know what? It is a little bit funny, but you know Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president.
1: Where is this going? Is this in a wolf-related incident?
0: <laughs> a wolf killed her pony.
1: <laughs> a wolf killed her pony. Yeah. Well, where, where did she, where did this happen?
0: <laughs> it happened in like this ranch thing that she has in Germany. She has this. She had this beloved pony called Dolly oh Apparently, God. she has a, pic, a picture of it in her office, and a wolf yeah. killed it. How
1: the hell do the, does a wolf kill a horse like that? <laughs> I'm getting images of like the raptors in Jurassic Park. You know when they start <laughs> attacking the T Rex. You know like wolves are fairly small, kind of relatively.
0: Yeah, I guess this was Jeez. a small pony. Um, anyway, this people's immediately, like people linked the killing of Dolly to this push in the European Parliament to like kill wolves because uh, Ursula von der Leyen is in the oh. same political party as the party that was driving that in the European Party. It's the, it's the European People's Party. It's the main centre-right bloc. It's the biggest political group. It's the one the Finnegale's in. So they, mm. they came out with this like anti-wolf stuff. They were sharing uh. like graphics of, evil wolves eyeing innocent sheep and shepherdesses on, on social media. They were like, the, you know, the, the wolf scourge. You know, they were really anti-wolves and simultaneously happened at the time as Ursula von der Leyen's pony was killed. But oh. we dare not draw conclusions.
1: Oh, well, listen, if your pony was killed by a wolf, it would be hard not to go on a massive wolf murdering agenda. Like, <laughs> You've got a vengeful crusade. Um <laughs> <laughs> so yeah oh god from all kinds of points of view you can see how this gets people's hackles up so like let's say if you're going to have wolves reintroduced kind of everywhere you have to accept that a few of your livestock are gonna be picked off in, in this mm-hmm. i suppose right you're just gonna have to accept that might happen even though it's like fairly unlikely um yeah. or that you're gonna have to change your practices putting up fences and stuff i'm, I'm amazed that the fences are such a um, an effective deterrent against wolves I thought they were yeah. supposed to be like um proverbially crafty creatures but they're obviously. <laughs> they're,
0: they're actually not that crafty uh, like mm. I I read studies about this at the time because it was uh, you know was, I was kind of interested and yeah like the fence is like 95% effective of reducing mm. these, but you know people people don't obviously want to assume more costs but I do so. think that this plays into like a whole existing culture of very negative views towards predators of any kind whether it's like birds of prey or badgers even sometimes very mm. innocent animals are kind of a, are kind of considered a threat to farming and agriculture and i think that's a it's not it's not like every farmer has it in for these creatures but like there's a certain mm. heritage of preferring an empty landscape to work with um
1: mm. yeah yeah you yeah. the animals that might be a bit only a bit of a nuisance but they're also just not profitable they're not making you money yeah. and they're on your land yeah and yeah absolutely uh so like from an irish context then did owen dalton have any view on like what kind of species might be reintroduced in ireland if they could? this is
0: a, this It's actually a really interesting topic and it's one that we discussed in the Patreon um, conversation. But essentially, the long and short of it is that he believes that the aim here really is to create ecosystems that are self-sustaining. So just Mm. work away happily by themselves without needing the intervention of humans to maintain them. And there is a discussion to be had in an Irish context about, okay, what species could you know help to to create that balance and there's a lot of disagreement about it because of you know what there's actually very very limited number of species that are considered native to Ireland but there's all sort of complex reasons why that's maybe not quite like we should consider more species native to Ireland um wolves as we said maybe it's a bit of a stretch because Ireland really doesn't have the wilderness um but it could a case could be made for lynxes um own argues because they're they're quite actually quite shy in general um they don't really come out and they don't come into conflict with humans as much but they do play a similar role in the ecosystem
1: they're small lynxes they're like big cats yeah
0: exactly as in like a
1: big house cat yeah Yeah. (laughs) um so i I feel like i feel like if i was in fighting form i could maybe fight one off (laughs) i don't know maybe (laughs) i shouldn't speak too soon until i meet a lynx Uh, but um it, it is so interesting that the protection of a species you know can have such a big impact like this right um I'm reminded of something very similar um I, I'll be getting my species wrong here but it's uh, some kind of native pine marten. I think is actively being re- reintroduced to Irish uh, woodland because it protects the red squirrel in this really roundabout yeah. way yeah it like it eats the things that eat the squirrel I think it's other pine martens or minks or something
0: it, it's um, the gray squirrels I think
1: Oh, the grey squirrels, the sorry, revival. yes, yeah. yeah. It eats the grey squirrels, that's it. Uh, because the red squirrels um, evolved alongside these things and oh. they put their nests like a little bit higher or they they like, they know how to evade them, but the grey squirrels have like never seen them, evolutionary, like really in their lives. So they just get picked right. off. It's such a fascinating, like knock on domino effect. That you know, is that, that fascinating, so it
0: was the absence of the pine martens that allowed the red squirrels to almost get out-competed by the grey squirrels. That's so interesting.
1: Yeah, or part of the jigsaw, I suppose. I'm I'm sure there's lots of of reasons. Part of the jigsaw. So, the contrary is also the case, though, sometimes, right? So, when policies are damaging and they're introduced at an EU level, for instance, they can have really drastic effects. So, we should talk about, for instance, the Common Agricultural Policy.
0: Yeah, this is the elephant in the room, really. Um, So, the Common Agricultural Policy, which is called CAP for short, CAP. It's a cornerstone of EU policy. It's had huge consequences on the landscape in Ireland, certainly, ever since it joined the European Economic Community in 1972. And the cap is actually the single biggest budget item to this day that the EU has.
1: Right. Wow. OK, so can you explain what is this?
0: Essentially, it's a food security policy that emerged from the wake of the Second World War. Um, that was a time when there was like famine and food shortages and stuff in Europe. Mm. So the idea is to subsidize farmers to ensure that they continue to produce food in plentiful cheap qualities, that's, uh, plentiful quantities that's available for people to eat at low prices.
1: Yeah, okay. So uh, to to anyone that would seem reasonable enough, right?
0: It seems reasonable enough, um, but it's, it's un- unwieldy and incredibly complex. And the details, because they're being applied across like a population of four hundred and fifty million people, they have enormous consequences. Um mm. you might remember when we were growing up, Tim, it was kind mm. of a source of controversy because it incentivized overproduction at the time. Do you remember talk about wine lakes ah. and cheese mountains and all that kind of stuff? Does that ring a bell?
1: I do I absolutely remember well it's an image that doesn't really leave you. Yeah, butter mountains yeah. and olive mountains yeah, that and kind stuff. Of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um yeah. this is yeah. I would have heard this for instance, I think in like uh, high school geography, right?
0: Right. So that was wasteful. And there was a lot of anger from agricultural producers actually outside the EU and other parts of the world because they felt that the EU was like dumping excess agricultural product into their markets and that they couldn't compete with this subsidized Mm. stuff. You hear similar criticisms of like the Chinese steel industry and stuff today. Um, But that was sort of reformed. It goes through these cycles of reforms and then comes in in place for seven years. In recent years, as... Europe becomes more and more focused on climate policies and biodiversity and questions like that. The cap has become kind of notorious for something else and it's all about the environment.
1: Okay, all right, so walk us through it.
0: Right, so broadly speaking, the cap pays farmers according to the size of their land, okay? Um. Mm-hmm. But to qualify for payments, you had to have land that's like deemed farming land. Mm-hmm. Um. And that meant that it basically couldn't have trees on it. So farmers had an incentive if there were any spare butts of woodland or wetlands or any other kind of oh. habitats to just flatten them, to flatten those special oh. habitats so that the land would qualify for payments. Oh. And if there was even a little bit like a, so much as a pond or, you know, a hedgerow or something, it might actually reduce the payments that you're getting. Because when the map is marked out, they literally draw a circle around it and they say, not that part, that's not agricultural land. Mm. So this is very much associated with the collapse in biodiversity in Europe, which is incredibly severe. I mean, we're mm. talking about pollinators, bees disappearing, and it's estimated that the world in general lost two thirds of its animals in the last 40 years. And in the EU, it's like widely accepted that the cap has been a major force in shaping the landscape.
1: Right, and not just of Ireland, I suppose, of all kinds of places. Um, exactly. So, so Across the what's block. happening with this? Have they recognised this? Is the, you know, what's happening with this?
0: Yeah, it is recognised, and there's been this huge effort to slam on the brakes and reform the cap to remove these incentives. And if you listen to the civil servants that design it now in the European Commission, all their talk is about biodiversity and climate goals. You know, it is a very big emphasis but it becomes incredibly difficult to turn around. It's like turning around an oil tanker because at this point you have this massive farming industry which is very dependent on these payments. They've created this dependency and it's very, very nervous about any changes that might reduce or threaten those payments. So it's been really, really, really difficult. And the whole negotiation of the thing, it's like thousands and thousands of pages of text, incredibly detailed, multi-layered, and Mm. many, many different interests. It's like a tug of war to try and get it so that it it serves their interests best, you know. And most Mm. of all, farmers are kind of saying, like, please just don't ask us to do more stuff because they say, you know, our margins are very, very small. We're doing a really important job here. We're growing food. And don't put more burdens on us to do this or do that or project this or whatever. You know, they just they kind of just want to get payments and to be left alone, more or less. All these negotiations actually went on for years, but they produced a new cap, new deal, which come in, has come into force uh, just this year, actually, and it's going oh. to be enforced for the next seven years. And it's all been changed and it's supposed to incentivize farmers to preserve biodiversity spots on their farms and to essentially farm carbon, basically, by protecting ah. and restoring carbon sinks. So the idea is like, you can say, I've got a wetland, here it is, and then you you, you fill out the form and stuff and you can get money for preserving it or you can get mm. money for preserving what whatever features that there are. There's no question that the intention behind it is there. The intention is to turn this around, certainly. The big question, though, now is how is it going to be implemented? Because although this is all sort of designed at an EU level, what's crucial is how it's implemented nationally. It's national governments who actually write their own plans about the implementation of the CAP and Mm. they oversee the whole implementation. And there's, there's quite a lot of leeway. Um, so, you know, whether the intentions behind it will actually cause results really, very, very much depends on the will of farmers and the national authorities that are going to oversee this and the local authorities, the people who are actually carrying it out and checking to see if it's being carried out. That's where we'll see whether it actually works or not. Certainly the intention is there, but the jury's still out in terms of whether it will actually work.
1: Wow okay it's kind of annoying that we're even like in the situation already that the <laughs> why did you let this happen in the first place <laughs> like, well, yeah. it's gonna take so much work to get to get back to it and that's actually a feeling that I've had uh for the last month really with these two episodes and especially listening to Owen Daltoon. I'm I'm angry about this Naomi. I'm angry mm. that like where are my forests? You know, I feel like this yeah. is a bit of my heritage as an Irish citizen. That's like not being managed properly, you know? Like this yeah. is a piece of the natural landscape, that beautiful sound, that sound of those rivers and it, like the forests that you and me remember right from growing up those little bits of forest where you did see a, a red squirrel, you did you saw that rich texture of all of those species and um, uh, together. That that's yeah. just being like destroyed through negligence and through yeah. ignorance. You know, is just so so infuriating. I want to be a woodcutter, Naomi. Is what I'm trying <laughs> to say. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, listen. Uh, you can remember everyone listen to that full interview with On Dalton, where he tells us all about his book. And I have to say, uh, Naomi, that his ideas are evergreen.
0: Yeah, very good. Mm-hmm. Um, listen, it was such a joy to visit um, the Irish Atlantic rainforest down in Barra for this episode and Speak to Owen. And I do recommend his book. It's a brilliant read. We'll put a link to it in the show notes um, where you can check it out.
1: Thanks to everyone for listening. And before I let you go, Naomi, there's one last thought I've had about those goats, you know? Yes. Let me tell you, you know, eating all that bark. <laughs> I just wonder that they didn't get sycamore. <laughs> oh
2: my God. Sloan. Hello, I'm sorry, Sloan I'm sorry friends. everyone. Slow on. Slow I'm sorry. <laughs>